It's another blessed and delightful opportunity that we've each been given this first day of the week, this Lord's Day morning, to assemble and to gather as we have for the express purpose of exalting and magnifying the character and the name of the God of heaven. In Ephesians 3 verse 21, the inspired writer there reminded us about how bringing glory to God through Christ is indeed one of our principal, our major missions, and how thankful we are today for health, for the vibrant activity that's ours to come together even as we are. As was mentioned earlier, we are thankful not only for the membership and the presence of everyone in that regard, but our visitors who've come our way this day. And we trust that each of us will be able to, in fact, be able to say it was well for us to have been here and to have opened our heart and mind to a worship of the God of heaven. As you might have noted in the bulletin, the title of the lesson today is Jesus, Why? As you can see on the wall to my left. And in fact, some introductory thoughts pointing us to the lesson that will follow are in fact these. As you and I survey the history of this earth, the history of the world, and see the events that have transpired on it, we of course would be here for an extensively long period of time to list many of the major events that have transpired. However, there is one set of events that by far overwhelms and in fact far surpasses all the others. It is that set of events that transpired outside Jerusalem about 20 centuries ago. The events, in fact, that took place on that occasion and at that time have forever altered and changed the way that things transpire here and the orderliness with which heaven looks upon what has occurred. It is the events surrounding the death of our Savior. Those hours that preceded it and those hours that followed it set before us a compass that points us really toward all of eternity and the responsible way that you and I should approach it. It is for that reason that for the next few moments this morning, I would invite us to survey again in the recesses of our mind the events that took place during that set of hours prior to and the events that of course were involved in the crucifixion of the Son of God. When we and I think about the crucifixion, and we in fact read those precious passages in the Word of God, and we in fact visualize to the best we can some of that which took place, it never ceases to be a very touching and emotional thing for those who love the Lord, for those that are aware of what transpired and the meaning that it had. I hope that each of us could be reminded again of the occasion of that this very morning. Jesus, why? When you and I think about John 6, verse 38, Jesus there expressly said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. Our Savior came to this earth, and although born there in that manger, in that city of Bethlehem, of course, the cross was ever in the future. That's why He came. But when you and I think about it, that leads us to ask Jesus, Why? Let's survey then beginning as we mind at this time some of the events that took place that evening prior to His crucifixion and then leading on up to the actual crucifixion itself. On that night previous, the Lord, as has been the case with those devout children of Israel ever since the days of Exodus chapter 12, they had been commanded of God to observe this celebration known as the Passover a remarkable reminder to them of how that God, when He saw the blood, passed over them that night, as in fact the death angel visited the nation of Egypt. As Jesus celebrated that with His close followers, 12 of them, 
It was a very special time in which they used the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine among the other things that had been listed. And as you can see, this took place as was the custom, as was the occasion of their keeping of the day shortly after the sundown hour. As those events are revealed to us in a number of the gospel accounts, I've especially asked you to notice Mark's version in Mark 14, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus celebrated that Passover with them, it is true that a number of details are provided. The upper room was made ready. They celebrated it as commanded. But there did come a time in it when we appreciate the Lord took that opportunity to put in place a memorial that has stood the test of time even until our day. In Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, Luke makes a special mention of this prayer the Lord offered for that unleavened bread. He said, this is my body. And then after the cup after supper, he also took and said, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And as the Lord put in place or instituted that supper, that memorial, he rather quickly said that it was to be maintained and kept and that He would keep it with those in the kingdom. And today, you and I as blessed members of the kingdom still appreciate the joy that comes to us as we too celebrate that. As you'll notice though, on that same occasion in time, that was also when Jesus identified His betrayer. He took the sop, He gave it to Judas. Judas, you might remember, thereafter rather quickly left. And so it was, as that scene ends, it brings us to a picture and over the course of the lesson this morning, we may look at a few renditions. Not to say that these are exactly, in all cases, the way that they would have occurred, but maybe as a visual illustration, they help us at least point our mind to the events that took place. After Judas left, John tells us that the Lord shared many amazing and powerful teachings with His followers concerning the nature of true Christian service, the great hope that awaits for those that are faithful, but he also spoke, of course, about the coming Holy Spirit and the joy and the blessing that would come with the arrival of that Holy Spirit. As the events of that Passover began to come to their conclusion, they sang a hymn. Jesus and they, we learn in Matthew's account, Matthew 26, they sang a hymn and proceeded to move in the direction of the Mount of Olives. You'll notice as those details are given to you and to me that a number of remarkable matters were discussed. In fact, along the course of that walk, we learn, for instance, very especially again in Mark's account of the Gospels, comment is made in the 14th chapter, that during that walk, Jesus foretold that that very night, that very shortly to come to pass, there was to be a mass departure on the part of those close followers. Peter, of course, denied it. That point, he in fact said, Though all others may, Lord, I will not. You might remember that Jesus, it seems in a very heartfelt fashion, pointed him to the reality that he too would undergo a departure that very evening. As all those events unfolded before us, that walk ultimately led them to a garden known as Gethsemane. As the gospel accounts describe for us that garden, may I again ask you to think about again a picture. This is a picture that I was able to find representative of typical gardens in that part of the world, olive gardens I should say. 
And so it may well be that something like this was a place to which our Savior retreated on that very night. And as John tells us, he had often been going to places like this. You'll notice as you give thought to that, perhaps a place of solitude and solace, a place of reflection and contemplation. At any rate, Jesus came to that particular place this evening. As He and the others came with Him, we remember that as He entered this place, the majority of them remained at one location, but He took with Him Peter and James and John and went a little distance further. And then He Himself went about a stone's throw farther than that, and He proceeded to pray. And He prayed earnestly. And He prayed fervently. The Lord knew very well what was to transpire in the coming hours. And He knew very well the great strength and fortitude that would be involved in it. But not only that, the great blessing to humanity that would come from it. And oh, how He prayed. The agony that beset Him in the body in the coming hours, the anguish that would be His to know, led the Lord to pray very fervently and earnestly. As you can imagine in the scenes of those prayers, the various gospel accounts tell us about the agony that the Lord appreciated that even as it were, those drops of sweat described in a way comparison to that of blood there in Luke's gospel account. As you notice, beyond all of that, we continue then with this discussion of Gethsemane. For those three apostles that were the nearest to Him in terms of location, Peter and James and John, by now we've reached the evening hour, certainly far deep into the evening. They fell asleep. The Lord returned to them not once, not twice, but three times, and each time He found them slumbering and asleep. And He asked them, Could you not bear with me? Could you not continue with me for an hour? And we notice as their sleep came on them in each of these occasions, in each of these occurrences, we notice that upon the third occasion, this time another band began to arrive. For Judas was now seen coming in the distance. And as Judas arrived, we notice he came with a band of officers and a band of soldiers. You see, when he had left, the gospel accounts had told us he put in motion the final details and specifics of what would lead, of course, to his betrayal of the Master. When you appreciate the events that I've listed here, you'll notice that as that band came... Judas planted a kiss on our Master, identifying Him as the One. And so indeed, we now notice these events took place. Peter, in his rather aggressive and bold fashion, drew his sword and proceeded to cut off the right ear of one of the officers, a gentleman named Malchus. However, we remember that Jesus rather quickly gave statements relative to putting up of that sword because He said, "...those who take it shall die by it as well." And he proceeded to miraculously heal the right ear of Malchus. Here was our Savior in the midst of the agony surrounding these events, and yet he still was so earnest and incessant about doing that which was the proper and right thing always. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, they proceeded to arrest this man named Jesus. They bound him. Here as he was a common criminal, and here again is another picture perhaps reminding us about the darkness of that hour, as the midnight hour has in fact now virtually arrived in its closeness, we notice they arrested this perfect one. He had never killed anybody. 
He had never, in fact, kidnapped anyone. He had never engaged in crimes against the state in any way. And yet here he was, bound and led off as a common criminal. And yet he was the Son of God. At any moment, he could have stopped these proceedings. At any moment, he could have brought an end to all of it and returned to all the glory of his home. But yet, not once did that thought apparently even cross his mind. He, in fact, allowed these to lead him to the place that we see described next. They led him to various trials, and the first took place in the house of a gentleman named Annas. Annas had been a former high priest. At this time, he was not, but he still was highly respected, and it would seem that he was one whose opinion and whose consideration mattered a great deal. They led Jesus then to this gentleman named Annas, and in John 18, 13, we notice a set of questionings took place surrounding him. The nature of what was transpired, and in fact, they were rather harsh circumstances to say the least. As the questioning surrounding the time of Annas proceeded onward, we notice that now here we are, looking at trials taking place in the wee hours of the morning. What kind of sense did that make? Trials occurring in the early, early hours of the day, according to the calendar of you and me at least. And yet we notice this is when the questionings were happening, but let's continue to consider it even beyond that. From there, Jesus was led to the chamber of Caiaphas, that gentleman who was the reigning and present high priest. It was here that Peter followed afar off. Peter had not completely forsaken yet. He was following at a distance. And we each remember what happened. When there was that assemblage here, the chief priests, the scribes, and others, as they now met in session to hear these matters of accusation against Jesus. As you can see at the bottom of that slide, they sought witnesses. But yet these witnesses that came, their stories did not agree, and thus it was an immediate conclusion that they were false. And a sufficient number of witnesses were not found to give any verdict, at least at this point. One by one, as all those things take place, I did list one of the great questions that was asked at this stage of these proceedings. Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That was asked verbatim of our Master, and this is what He said. Jesus responded, I am. Those unforgettable words in Mark 14, beginning in verse 61. Finally, upon the Lord's giving of that response and that answer, there we then see they did reach a conclusion. This man is guilty of blasphemy. He has equated himself with God, and therefore on the charge of blasphemy, we render a verdict as guilty. You can see... At this point, they spat upon our Savior. They beat Him. Furthermore, you'll remember that they slapped Him on the face after having covered His eyes and said, who, who of us hit you? Tell us, which one of us beat you? Can you imagine the humiliation, the insult, the personal injury, as well as, of course, the tragedy of all the accusations they were now leveling against Jesus? And yet none of it was true. They had in fact sought false witnesses and found none. And now on this charge of blasphemy, they were railing against the very Son of God. It was here then perhaps one final blow. At a distance, of course, Peter had been asked not once, not twice, but three times, weren't you one of them? Weren't you with him? 
Peter said, I don't know the man. And even the final time, he even cursed in light of the fact he still denied that he knew Jesus. The Lord, of course, being apparently at a somewhat raised spectacle, spotted Peter in a distance and the cock crowed just as Jesus not many hours before had said that it would. Peter, of course, went out and wept. He went out and wept bitterly. He had denied the very one whom he previously had charged that he would love no matter what. He had denied the one who, in fact, he had witnessed for some amount of time give his life in every regard for others. As you can imagine, all these scenes and settings, perhaps another picture. Here was Jesus in, at this point still, this placement of trial before these others. Again, as the wee hours of the morning passed away, we find now before Annas and now before Caiaphas, this one, this Jesus, this Son of God has been now found guilty. However, there was of course a problem that was going to come their way. The problem was that although the Jews had now acclaimed our Master as guilty, that is to say He has been found guilty of something worthy of death, the Romans had stripped the Jews of the power of capital punishment that had now been gone for a couple of decades at least. And so they had not the power to put the Lord to death, and hence they led Jesus to a Roman governor. The ruling official in that arena, his name was Pilate, as they led Jesus to this gentleman, they proceeded thus before Pilate to accuse Jesus. But isn't it interesting that although previously they had arraigned him on these charges of blasphemy, now they accuse him before Pilate of subverting the nation. They changed their charge, all of course in a dubious effort to get Pilate to find him guilty. You'll notice in Luke 23 verse number 2 as those statements are made, it quickly leads us to the line of questioning. Pilate listened to the accusers. He seemingly heard with a degree of interest as to what was stated because he wanted no uproar in his territory. That leads me to make this comment. He seemingly rather quickly learned in those questionings that Jesus was of the Galilean area and therefore he seemingly thought this was a way to send Jesus to Herod. Let another official deal with this problem. And thus the Lord was sent to Herod for him to make verdict and for him to hear the case and for him to make sentence. When Jesus was brought to Herod, we did learn immediately that Herod had some interest initially in listening to what Jesus had to say. However, after the Lord was unwilling to do the magic and the tricks and the miracles that Herod most interestingly wanted to see, Herod became rather uninterested. And some of these events quickly took place. Herod's men mocked Jesus, made fun of Him, insulted Him, and did so like this. They put a robe upon Him after having, of course, stripped Him of His other clothing. And with that robe put on Him, you'll notice they sent Him back to Pilate. They'd had their fun. They'd had enough of this and returned Jesus then back to Pilate to deal with the case. Beyond that, you'll notice these Jewish leaders... Those who were in part guilty of bringing him, of course, before Pilate and who had wanted to see him put to death, they brought their accusations. And they brought them in numbers like this. They proceeded to testify harshly, strongly before the ears of Pilate about the nature of this one, this one named Jesus. 
As you can see near the close of that line, at this point, the text simply says Jesus answered nothing. He heard, he was aware of what was said, but he responded not at all. All that leads us to conclude that at this point, even in private, Pilate also had discussions with Jesus and seemingly was very impressed with Jesus. In fact, I simply commented like this. It was at this very point in John 18 that a discussion involving two tremendous truths, namely the truth on the one hand and the kingdom on the other, took place. Jesus, of course, all the while in calmness, was very much able to read the mind of Pilate, able to read the character of his being, and he knew very well what it was that Pilate was wrestling with. And isn't it fantastic that he here made mention of truth? Pilate more than once had declared, I find no fault in this man. He had admitted that at least twice. All the while, those admissions lead us to conclude that slide. Maybe Luke says it most notably in Luke 23, 14. Here, before number, before others, Pilate even acknowledged, I find no fault in him, certainly nothing worthy of death. All the while, as the hours were still passing away, keep in mind that the Lord hadn't slept now in a long time. You may remember the agony in the garden, and the apostles had slept some. And you remember the other series of events in the days prior, but yet the days had been full for the Lord. At this point, you'll notice that brings us, Pilate did come up with an idea. It was an idea that had been utilized in previous occurrences. It was their custom to release a certain noteworthy or notable prisoner at this season of the year. And so Pilate made the offer, let me release Barabbas. Or rather, let me release Jesus and I'll maintain Barabbas. But he gave them the choice and he allowed them to make the final call. Would you rather me release Jesus or would you rather Barabbas? And you might remember how incessantly the crowd cried. How agitated the religious leaders made them when they cried, Crucify Him, crucify Him with respect to Jesus. You notice that their thirst for blood, their thirst for ending the life of this one hadn't yet been found. That leads us to notice that as this crowd demanded that Barabbas be released, they were choosing. This gentleman referred to as a robber in other passages as a murderer. Here was an individual who really was a criminal, who really was one who had offended the lives of many and taken the lives of many, apparently. And yet... They requested He be released and Jesus be killed. Oh, the infamy of the day. Oh, the series of tragedies surrounding the wicked and evil and iniquitous choices of the human family. Choosing for Jesus to be put to death while all the while choosing this other one, this other offender, this other criminal to live. You'll notice all of that leads us to notice that Pilate in John 19... Beginning in verse number 1, then after they had made that selection, he had the Lord scourged. That's an interesting word. Of course, it has behind it a rather difficult set of ideas, but difficult in the sense of appreciating the pain and agony of the victim. Scourging was a rather brutal beating, wasn't it? It was this particular set of events in which the victim was tied basically bound in a configuration where he was basically rendered helpless and also his body quite likely rather vulnerable. 
And then these rather burly and large and well-trained and well-prepared soldiers began to flail away at the body of the victim using specially prepared whips. You'll notice that as all of that took place, perhaps a picture like this one again comes to our mind. We don't know that the Lord was particularly attached in a form like this. Maybe His body was bent over more. At any rate, the idea is rather clear enough. At least physically, He was rendered helpless. And then these Roman soldiers began to beat upon His body with these whips that often were specifically prepared in such a way that they had within the very throngs and throes of the ends particularly hard pieces, maybe metal, maybe rock, maybe kinds of glass. All the while, of course, as those stripes were laid upon the body of the victim, you can imagine how easily and how quickly the flesh would be rent asunder and the blood would begin to rather profusely flow from the surface. As those particular whippings proceeded onward, it always causes us, I suppose, to reflect on the pain that would rather quickly follow. Flesh that's exposed and then is, of course, reissued and re-injured often has such agonizing pain, even medically, that attaches to it. And so it was here. As Jesus was beaten time after time, time after time, by these Roman soldiers... It would seem from the description of it, at least at one point, that when Pilate recognized the nature of it, even he himself was brought to bear to how serious the resulting scourging had come. Apparently, this man Jesus was near the point of death by the end of the scourging. However, he did not die then. When you think with me about the nature of that scourging, it brings us to one other interesting point in this life of Pilate. Pilate's wife had had a dream, and even she advised her husband to have nothing to do with this man. Because in the dream, of course, she had been very interestingly in position to hear that this one ought not to be found in a place like this. You might remember that Pilate, of course, washed his hands of the matter in a figurative fashion and made that final decision to turn him over to the Jews. The soldier stripped him of his clothes, here already beaten, virtually on the point of dead. And now they stripped him of his clothes in perhaps one final public element of humiliation. And this was Jesus again. It wasn't Barabbas, nor was it any other common criminal. This was the greatest one of all. As you notice with me the statements that follow, they did put a scarlet robe upon him. And furthermore, they took the time to plait a crown, but not a crown of honor, a crown of thorns. As it was fashioned and made and pressed down upon his head, you can imagine that although blood was now flowing from many portions of his midsection and otherwise now, there would also have been blood flowing down his face and down the back of his head. As that blood flowed, you might notice that they put a reed in his hand as if it was a scepter, and in fact pretended that he was the king as in fact he really was. This Jesus, you see, was such that now with this pretending scepter in his hand, it leads us to notice in a final act of mockery, they in fact acclaimed him a king and they never realized how true they were. He really was the king of all kings. 
Later in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, He is called on that occasion King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus was treated in all the ways that we've studied so far. After again, they seemed to tire of mocking Him and blaspheming Him in that way. They put His own clothes back on Him and led Him out to a place of crucifixion. Pilate had agreed that those things would follow. Here's a picture of a crown of thorns, admittedly rather dark, but you can perhaps see the agony on the face as it was platted down upon him. And you can imagine as a reed was struck on the head with a crown of thorns already there, what additional pain would have quickly followed. With our Savior in a position like this, it was now off to the place of crucifixion that He would go. Being led there, and you will readily appreciate with me, that some of these statements as revealed in the gospel accounts, by this point having lost a significant amount of blood and having been in a very noteworthy weakened condition, Jesus preceded that walk and they placed upon Him the very cross on which He'd be crucified. They compelled a gentleman named Simon to assist Him as is revealed also in the gospel accounts. And as these two trudged onward with that cross, this heavy, wooden set of beams on which He would be crucified, we notice that by now we are at least approximately at 9 o'clock in the morning. What a 12 hours it has been. A 12 hours filled with agony, both mentally and physically. 12 hours filled with all the fraud and weight of the sins of all of humanity. We aren't yet finished. As that hour had come, we noticed that they now bring Him to this place and they, of course, proceed onward with the crucifixion. Here is again an image of a gentleman beneath that cross intending to remind us of the Master Himself as He trudged onward, difficult and lowly step after difficult and lowly step, trudging slowly toward that place of execution. As Jesus was brought to that place, we notice that one by one His hands were taken. And they, with a kind of hammer, plunged nails into His hands. And they did the same to His feet. As those nails plunged inward, He had already, of course, labored under such a weight over the hours previous, and the loss of blood has already been extensive. And yet now, of course, these Roman soldiers, those involved in the, specif the specifics of the execution... They now take these spikes and drive them into His hands, attaching Him to that cross. And then they did the same, of course, with His feet. Here, suspended and hanging between heaven and earth, was the one you and I call the Lord. The one who was by far the greatest of all. The one who left all the glory of heaven in John 17, 4, and came here for your benefit and mine. Here was the one who was willing to take this, and to do so, realizing the needfulness of it for you and for me. As you think about the nature of the crucifixion of our Master, and the set of events that we see on this place, it tells us again that here it was in the hours of that morning. As He was affixed to that cross, they of course put that placard, that inscription above it that said, This is the King of the Jews. He really was the King. And yet he had humbly submitted himself to all these features and all these things. As the hours of that day continued to pass by, we do remember 
that on that cross, there was, of course, a vibrant set of activities as those surrounded at the bottom watched, and they looked on with great interest. There were, of course, women gathered nearby. You'll notice that they offered Jesus wine mingled with myrrh. The Lord refused it. They wagged their heads at Him, pointed their fingers in His direction. In fact, there were even some who said, Come down from the cross, you saved others, why not save yourself? And yet, of course, the Lord remained on that cross. You'll notice as we reached the 12 o'clock hour of that particular day, a darkness fell over the land. Though it was in the midst of the day, here it was dark. And isn't that darkness a reminder of the dark choices of the human family on this occasion? We notice that there were others crucified with Him that day. There were two thieves, and one of them seemingly had no penitence involved in Him but the other one. He, in fact, addressed Jesus, beseeching Him to remember Him. And didn't Jesus say, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise? The Lord is, in fact, as He spoke so comfortably and with such promise to one of those thieves. It brings us to the events of that darkness. And it brings us to the events, of course, of those very touching statements of Jesus. A few things He said while hanging on that cross. You'll remember what some of them were. The particular scenes that you'll notice bring us to this crucifixion of Jesus. You can imagine a gentleman, a man, in the kind of agony and anguish that he was, and yet able to speak to those gathered at his feet, those watching and those observant and those who with such interest were taking advantage of being there that day to observe. When our Savior was in that position, you'll notice that these statements at the bottom of that slide, I've just listed the texts, for all of them are very familiar to us. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, speaking about the nature of the forgiveness available, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here was a man hanging on a cross, having been treated the way that he had, and yet petitioning the God of heaven in light of forgiveness, if they would only choose appropriately for those gathered. You'll notice in John 19, 26, Jesus Again, made that statement as he spoke even to Mary as well as to John. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. Beyond that, we notice in Luke 23, 43, he said today to that thief, thou shalt be with me in paradise. In Mark 15, 34, Jesus on that occasion made a grand pronouncement about the nature of the events of that day and the choices in terms of his faithfulness to, the, to the, his heavenly Father. In Luke 23, 46, he made the statements of the great notion of completion of those events. And oh, what great benefits for the human family. Finally, in John 19, 30, did he not say, it is finished? One by one, as the Lord made those statements, he then gave up the ghost. The final event had been drawn to asunder. At three o'clock in the afternoon, on that particular day, Jesus, the Son of God, died, giving His life and all that He had intended in full completion to the will of God. With the events of that death, we notice the soldiers came, given that the Sabbath was soon approaching, in terms of the events and the need for preparation.
the soldiers came to hasten the deaths of those on the cross, and yet when they came to the Lord, He was already dead. He had already died. However, we notice that they didn't then break His legs, but we notice that Roman soldier in John 19.34 did plunge the spear into the side of our Savior, and forthwith came forth blood and water. And so it was that Jesus, of course, in confirmation of His death... That brings us, of course, to the notion of His burial. And then in the later statement on that slide, the triumphant resurrection on Sunday morning. In Romans 1 verse number 4, He was declared to be the Son of God by the power of God through the resurrection. But you and I, at least for the last few moments, have reiterated and revisited the scenes of the cross and what preceded it and those events right up to its actual occurrence. And again, we revisit the question, why? Why would the Son of God, one who had the power to remove Himself from these things, to allow Himself to suffer so, to be humiliated, to be beaten, to be mocked, to be scourged, to be blasphemed, to be so mistreated? And yet all the while, perhaps it was the lesson text read earlier when Joy read it for us in Isaiah 53. Wasn't it true in verse number 4 of that particular passage? Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You see, it was your sorrows and your griefs and mine that He took to the cross that day. But that famous statement in Isaiah 53 goes onward. Verse number 5 says that He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes. We are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Are you a Christian today, my friend? The Son of God endured all of that for you. And He endured it for me. Would you not in humble and submissive obedience simply become a faithful follower of His? If you've never been inaugurated into the kingdom of God... Why not enjoy that benefit today, for that's why all this took place. You need to believe with all your heart that He was and is the Son of God. You need to repent of your sins. You need to confess His matchless name as a Son of God and then be baptized. If we could assist you in that way today, what a great, great day for you it would be. If you, though, have known the walk of Christianity, but you have not been faithful... Maybe you have forgotten some of what we revisited this morning. Maybe you forgot what He did for you. Don't forget it any longer. Come back to your first love. Beseech us to pray with you and for you on a public character if those sins have been of that nature. If we could pray for your strength and fortitude, if we could be of assistance in any way, may we ever remember why, Lord, and think first about our own sins. It was needful, and if we could be of help to you today, won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.